may be seated. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14. Our passage today is the final subsection of this major section in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in which he discusses the topic of gathered worship and our behavior and the uh, theology undergirding that behavior in the gathering of God's people for worship. And so what Paul's going to do today is he's going to sort of tie up some loose threads, tie them together, weave them together, uh, some threads that he's introduced in the last few chapters. So let's go ahead and pick up uh, where we left off a few weeks ago in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. As we go to prayer this morning, I would ask you to keep uh, in in your prayers throughout the week. Shirley Powell, uh, Shirley had a stroke a few weeks ago, and uh, she is uh, able to communicate and talk, but she's not... uh, Seeming, seemingly not recovering from that, okay? So she's just kind of uh, restricted to her bed at this point there in, in Mineral Wells Nursing Home. Uh, I'm sure she would love visitors. She can talk to you. She can have a conversation. She just gets tired really quickly. Uh, so if you'd like to go visit her, I'm sure it would be just fine, and that would encourage her. Uh, but let's keep Shirley in our prayers as well. Uh, would you join me before the throne of grace? Father, we... Uh, we want to thank you for designing your world and designing us to fit into that world in a way that glorifies you and gives us great joy. 
And even though we live in a world that's been marred and twisted and, and bent out of shape by sin, and we participate in that, it, it reaches even to the depths of our hearts. Uh, we can see the way that you're taking your church and, and, and you're sending your spirit to us and you're, you're slowly, gradually, progressively remaking us and refashioning us in, in the image of your son so that we might fulfill your original purpose. Lord, I pray that you continue to do that. Lord, we ask, uh, we, we, we also lift up uh, our sister, uh, Shirley Powell, and, and ask that as she uh, just deals with the weakness of the body and the, the reality of the, the temporalness of life, that she would keep eternity in the front of her mind. And I pray that uh, in these moments that you would make crystal clear to her that her name is written in your book and that she is justified before your judgment bench, and that her verdict's already been announced, not guilty, and that she is welcome in your family, Lord. I pray that that would comfort her, give her confidence and hope, and Lord, I pray that you would gather her, uh, uh, gather your people around her in this time when she walks through a uh, difficult trial. We ask that you would uh, just have your way in her life, Father. Um, Lord, we pray as well for Pastor Guy and for Marianne as they return home from a missions trip. And we ask that the fruit that they were able to see would remain and grow and continue to bear more fruit there in Kenya. And uh, Lord, we, we love you. We ask that you'd open up your word to us so that we might not just know facts and figures and, and theological realities, but that we might know you personally. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About five years ago, uh, Mandy and I made an offer on a little house in Southeast Mineral Wells, a house that was livable but needed a little bit of work. For those of you who have ever bought a house, you know what this is like. You have to see what can be, not just look at what's there, but look at what the potential is of that property. So when we first moved in, we had to do that, and we're still having to do that somewhat, uh, but when we first moved in that house, the backyard was an angry tangle of leaves and branches, a dead cherry tree serving as a super highway for ants and aphids, scratched incessantly against the shed roof. Limbs of an oak tree swung low over the driveway. A single thorny stalk suggested the possibility of roses underneath the living room window. Unkempt myrtle branches intertwined with the tall shoots of massive spiny weeds. It was clear that at one time, long in the past, the backyard of this house had been a beautiful leafy garden lined with bricks and river rock, carefully curated by the previous owner who had been its first and only occupant until old age had kept him from pruning and weeding as the uh, as the garden needed. You could see the imprint of its former glory, but what was also clear was that a tremendous effort would be needed to bring order to the chaos, to chase away the bracken and trim off the dead and dying branches so that each bush, each shrub, each tree could thrive. Now, I am no garden expert, but it seems to me that any good garden requires both order, and freedom. 
That careful arrangement, when rightly applied, can enable the various plants to thrive, and that takes some skill. You have to uproot the plants that aren't uh, the, that don't belong there without disturbing the plants that do belong there. You have to trim away what's unhelpful in order to give the right branches a chance to see the sun. You have to do it at the right time of year to give those plants the best chance. And I still have a vision of what that garden is supposed to look like. It's not reality yet, but I can see it there in the future. Folks, when God created the earth, and you'll remember the passage that Leah read a few minutes ago. When God created the earth, he planted a garden. And really the entire earth, there there was a garden in Eden, right? That was the specific spot from which it was all going to start. But the entire earth was intended to be a garden. Did you notice how he separated the light from the darkness and he separated the waters above from the waters below and he separated the dry land from the seas. He lifted the land from the chaos of the oceans. He caused the dry land to teem with plants of every kind and filled the seas with fish and the skies with birds. Life just spilled out from every crack and crevice. And then he scooped together the dust of the earth and he formed a man and he formed a woman in his image. And he placed them in this garden and he gave them a very clear mandate. Cultivate and keep it. Subdue the earth. You be my vice regents in the earth. Rule over this land. Now that was long ago, and the thorns and the thistles have grown up, the famine and the drought have encroached, and by now, that original vision is covered over with vines and weeds, both literal and metaphorical. But make no mistake, God still wants his earth to be that garden cultivated and kept by human beings like you and me. And he will bring that vision about gloriously when our Savior returns to earth and ushers in the new creation. And even now, in the meantime, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you thought about this? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is sort of like a greenhouse getting ready for that moment. It's the place where the life of that new creation garden can thrive in spite of the harsh conditions of the world outside. And over the last several weeks, we've seen that as we've worked our way slowly through chapters 11 through 14. We've considered the nature of gathered worship and we've learned what that gathering ought to look like. It's supposed to reflect the fellowship and the life and the glory of that new creation. It's supposed to be a garden sanctuary situated in the city of man. It ought to be a time and a place in which believers have real fellowship with one another and with their God. It ought to be a time and a place characterized by the very same love that God the Father had for God the Son, and they shared in eternity past. It ought to reflect the manifold variety of the wisdom of God who gives the abundance of spiritual gifts. Just like you walk into that garden, a beautiful garden today, and you see different types of plants and maybe different types of animals, that's sort of how the church is supposed to be. There's a diversity, a variety of gifts, and that comes out when we come together. But if, if we're going to be that people, if we're going to be God's gardeners, and this gathering is going to be a reflection of the new Jerusalem with its tree of life and its clear crystal water surrounding the throne, then the gathered worship of God must reflect the ordered life 
intended in the creation of the world. The only difference is that's, that what's growing in the church, the garden of God's church, is not plants, it's people, and they're nourished not by rains, but by the words of his truth. So as Paul begins to take all these threads from the last four chapters and weave them together into practical application, he sounds this very clear note. And here's the main idea of this passage. Edifying worship must be orderly worship. Edifying worship must be orderly worship. When we gather to worship, It's supposed to build us up. It's supposed to build up the faith of the people of God. It's supposed to invite those who don't believe into the family of God and grow them in their faith and in their relationship with God. And if that's going to happen, if it's going to be edifying, it's going to have to be orderly. And therefore, the church must work together to set things in order, just like a garden, not chopping away at real life, but clearing away the things that need to be cleared away so that every person, every plant, so to speak, enjoys the sun in appropriate measure. Edifying worship is orderly worship. And the way that that Paul sort of works through this is by giving us instruction, you might have noticed this, in when to be silent and when to speak. He goes back and forth between those two ideas throughout this passage. And so there are three topics to which he applies these questions. Spiritual gifts, gender, and then sources of authority. You'll see what I mean momentarily. But consider with me in the first place, speaking, silence, and spiritual gifts. Speaking, silence, and spiritual gifts. When you come together, Paul says... This is his way of speaking about the gathering of the local church for worship. Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let's not gloss over what he says there in this opening verse. Notice how he says, when, not if. I know I probably say this a lot, but I'll say it again. There is no example of a Christian in the New Testament who does not participate in a local church. When, not if. That's normal. That's expected. And you can't really fulfill all that God has for you if the New Testament has anything to say about what it means to live like a Christian. If you don't have a local church to which you belong and with which you gather. So I urge you again, as I often do, to choose a local church and to make uh, your life all about that, uh, what God is doing in that local church, whether that's Indian Creek or somewhere else. What's more, he he more or less comes out and he says that gathered worship is an activity in which all of God's people play a part. It's not something you come and watch other people do. It's not something just the people at the front of the, the, the room do. It's something that we all do. It's not a spectator sport. It's a sport in which we all participate. We all need to be on the court or on the field. He says each of you has a hymn, a lesson, etc. Now, that's something I personally felt convicted about this week as I was studying. I need to take that to heart. You know, we like things to be well-ordered and well-done, and sometimes we assume that that means that uh, only the pros, you know, get to do the things in worship, and that's just not true. That's a misunderstanding. Uh, Paul advocates for good order, but that's not the same thing as saying that only the professionals should be given a microphone and everyone else needs to stay in their seats. In other words, you can have orderly, edifying worship without it becoming predictable and dull and professional and perfunctory. Worship is not just for the talented or the polished 
or the professional to perform while everyone else watches. It's something we do together, and I feel the need to emphasize that more myself. I like to hear more encouragement from everybody in the room. I love hearing from Rita and hear her burden about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering or hear from Leah and her uh, what she gleaned from her equipping class. That edifies everybody. That builds all of us up. Well, at any rate, in Corinth, uh, it's not that they were being overly produced or overly professional or overly slick. Their worship gatherings had combined class warfare between the haves and the have-nots, as well as a, a chaotic sort of ecstatic experience, not unlike the, the gyrations of the pagan idol temple. And so Paul says, wait a second, Corinthians, you have got to have some order if this is going to build people up. You've got to know when to be silent and when to speak. So in verses 27 and 28, he applies this concept to the gift of tongues. Uh, What is tongues? Uh, We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but just by way of reminder, the gift of tongues, at least the kind Paul is speaking about here in 1 Corinthians, as one commentator puts it, is, quote, the language of the subconscious. It's a gift of the Spirit that allows a person to communicate to God what he or she cannot express with human words. It's not meaningless, but it goes beyond human words. Uh, I know some of you would argue I'm actually speaking the language of angels when I, when I speak in tongues. I don't think that that's the kind of gift that Paul's talking about. And the reason I say that is because he says this is something that's going to cease. In other words, there's going to come a day when we'll be communicating with the Lord and we won't run out of words to say because we'll have the ability to communicate him without the hindrances of the present day. And so this gift is I'm expressing my affections for the Lord, my longings for the Lord in a way that I cannot put into words. Today, the Spirit gives this gift to some Christians. And if this is the case, then Paul says it's not helping anyone for all of us to stand around shouting over each other in these languages that, that, that we can't understand what each other is saying. That doesn't build anybody up. And so uh, if we're going to bring that into the gathered worship of the church, then it should be one at a time. And then somebody needs to be present who can put those utterances into words and keep it to two or three. So if you have the gift of tongues, When should you speak in gathered worship? When no one else is speaking and when there is someone to interpret. When should you be silent? When no one is able to discern what you're saying and interpret for the rest of the group. So this instruction, I'm just pulling it right out of these verses. It's very simple. Don't speak over other people in worship. If we're all singing a hymn together, that's not the time to break out into, you know, speaking in tongues because that's going against what Paul clearly instructs us to do here in this passage. You can control when you open your mouth and speak and when you are silent, and it may be more edifying to be silent. Okay, well, what about the gift of prophecy? Uh, We learned two weeks ago that prophecy is spirit-empowered speech that is designed to encourage, exhort, challenge, comfort, convict, or rebuke. Uh, Prophecy is different from tongues, And how is it different from tongues? Well, you're using human words, human language that other people can understand. You're also speaking to God's people instead of speaking to God. So prophecy is different from the gift of tongues. It's also different from the gift of teaching in that it tends to originate from an intuitive thought process 
rather than a rational or discursive thought process. And in that, it is, in that it's designed to move the hearer rather than merely inform the hearer. So what's teaching? Teaching is instruction. It's, I'm trying to explain what the Bible has to say. Prophecy is a little different because it's more about motivating people to act, motivating people to move, to be encouraged, to be convicted. So keeping in mind what we stated two weeks ago, that prophetic gift is similar in some respects to the gifts given to the apostles, but it's not exactly the same because the apostles were doing foundation work and we're not doing foundation work. We're building on that foundation. So I think we can still say, though, that in this day and age, there's a wide variety of speech that I I think would be appropriate to call prophetic utterances or prophetic speech. So maybe, for example... The Lord's given you a strong impression to encourage or to challenge someone in your life. Uh, Maybe the Lord has brought something to mind to you in a dream, and you can tell that that's a meaningful thing. It's not just a dream because you had a bad bologna sandwich that day. That's something that you need to kind of bring up to somebody else. Uh, Maybe you received a strong intuition regarding uh, somebody in your church or regarding your church as a whole. There's a lot of different Uh, sort of manifestations of this, and I think it would be fine to to categorize that under the umbrella of, of prophecy. And it's very important that we keep these types of experiences in their proper place. They're not equal in authority to Scripture. Uh, God is not giving you uh, words that can be added to Scripture. Maybe he's calling something to mind that you put in your own words. And all I'm trying to say is, even though the Holy Spirit is unlimited, you are limited, right? And so we've got to recognize that. And so with that in mind, though, there's no reason to conclude that the Spirit won't give these powerful impressions. And so you say, well, okay, I've, I've had these experiences. I, I've had these, these uh, manifestations of the Holy Spirit. What do I do with this? Well, in the context of gathered worship, when, when should I speak? Well, one at a time, only two or three at most. When should you be silent? When someone else is talking. <laughs> and then notice verse 29. This is important. What does he say? Let the others weigh what is said. In other words, if you have this type of gift, don't usurp more authority than you really have. Don't tell people, well, God told me this or God told me that, and then act as though nobody can question what you have to say. That's not what Paul instructs us to do. What, and one of the things I've noticed, even among the most committed, charismatic, or Pentecostal brothers that I spend time with is that the most spiritually mature among those brothers constantly invite others to weigh what they're saying. They say, hey, I believe the Lord might be saying this, but you bear witness or you testify or you judge whether that's true or not because they're recognizing that even though the Holy Spirit is infallible, they are fallible. And so they invite people to weigh what is being said. So before we move on to the next thing, and since we're not going back to the topic of tongues or prophecy for a long while after today, let me just kind of summarize and list some practical applications of this for today. And I'm going to move through these pretty quick, um, just for the sake of time, okay? I have seven, I think, of these. Okay, number one, remember... Not everyone has the gift of tongues or prophecy, and that's good. If you don't have these gifts, it does not necessarily mean that you are not close to God. 
don't believe that for a second. God loves to give a diversity of gifts to his people, and so not everyone has the same spiritual gifts. That's a good thing. Uh, Application number two, the Spirit's ministry today is similar to but not the same as his ministry to the apostles. They were doing foundation work. We're building on the foundation, so there are going to be differences between then and now. Number three, if you have the gift of tongues, that is normally going to be used for your benefit in prayer, but you should ask God for the ability to put your utterances into words that can benefit others. And again, I'm just pulling that right from the text. Number four, if you have a prophetic gift, meaning that the Holy Spirit is giving you communication through dreams or intuitions or impressions, that is normally for the benefit of others. And I would encourage you to learn how to share those things with other people in a way that builds up their faith. And by the way, there is a way to share these things with other people that is harmful and a way to share these things with people that helps. Learn how to be edifying in the way that you exercise your spiritual gifts. Number five, in all cases, your own judgment is fallible and subject to error. Your impressions are not on par with Scripture. Scripture is unique because every word of Scripture is the words of God. He oversees in Scripture not just the process, but the product that we have in our hands. Scripture is different. Number six, we ought to make space for spirit-empowered utterances, exhortations, encouragements, etc., in the gathered worship of the church. But these utterances must be weighed by those who are present and responsible for the teaching of the church. And then number seven, in many cases, silence is as edifying as speaking. Be patient, and let's remember the wisdom of the word of God. Let every man be slow to speak and swift to to hear. Silence can be as edifying as speaking. Now, I know I'm moving quickly through this, but edifying worship, here's the point. Here's the larger overarching idea. Edifying worship is going to be orderly worship. Those spiritual gifts like tongues or prophecy, they're meant to be used in a certain way to build up the body of Christ. And if we just allow them to grow up like a bunch of weeds willy-nilly, then that garden isn't going to be healthy and built up. So let's be orderly in the way that we exercise our gifts. So that's silence, speaking, and spiritual gifts. But secondly, consider from verses 34 and 35, silence, speaking, and gender. Silence, speaking, and gender. Now I could feel the tension when we read these verses. Many interpreters, incredibly, I was surprised, but I shouldn't have been surprised, when I found this out, many have concluded that these verses are actually not original to Paul's letter. Someone added them later. Now, that's crazy to me, not only because of the evidence that shows that this is part of the original letter, but even the style and the subject and the content of these verses matches exactly with what he's been talking about. Uh, Notice how he's saying to those with the gift of tongues, and the gift of prophecy, this is when you speak, this is when you need to be silent. 
And again, he does that same thing on the matter of gender. This is when you need to speak. This is when you need to be silent. So this is what he's talking about. He's talking about when we gather for worship, here's what it looks like to be orderly in the church. What's more, and and this is just kind of extra, but if you were a a reader in the ancient Near East, uh, the way that that your mind organizes content is a little different from the way that we organize it today. It's not like an outline form, uh, but but in in ancient writings, a lot of times the text is shaped like a mountain. And, And if you'll notice, chapter 11, the beginning, he's talking about men and women in the church. Remember the head coverings passage? We were all having fun with that one, right? And then he, he talks about uh, gathered worship, and then he, he kind of climaxes with this hymn to love in chapter 13, and then we come back down the mountain, and here we are at the end of this major section, and he's talking about men and women in gathered worship again. So this is obviously on purpose. And notice what he tells us. He says in verse 34, women should keep silent in churches. Verse 35, women should speak in their homes. Oh, it's really simple, isn't it? It's really not that simple, and here's why. It, by the way, as a preacher, when I get up to preach, uh, just as a preacher, not as a pastor, but as a preacher, it would be much easier for me if it were that simple. I could just say, women can't talk in church, and that's the end of it, right? And then we could go home and go eat lunch or something. But it's not that simple because we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And here's the conundrum. In chapter 11, verse 5, Paul mentions sort of in passing that women are praying and prophesying in the gathering of the local church. And then here in this passage, he's saying women should be silent in the church. So which is it? Is there a contradiction here? Is Paul contradicting himself? Did he write one thing and then, you know, some woman made him angry and then he wrote something else here in chapter 14? What happened? How do we reconcile these two passages? Well, there are really only two possibilities. Either Paul is addressing a different setting in each chapter. So, for example, chapter 11 is talking about an informal setting, and chapter 14 is talking about a formal setting. Some people have concluded that. Or he's talking about two different types of speech in each chapter. In chapter 14, he's talking about one type of speech, and women shouldn't engage in that type of speech. And in chapter 11, he's talking about something that they're permitted to do. And I I think the the second possibility is the most likely, and here's why I say that. Uh, Chapter 11 is absolutely talking about the gathering of the local church. The whole section is talking about the gathering of the local church. So you've got women in, in chapter 11 uttering prophetic utterances in the context of the gathering of the local church, and then In chapter 14, he says, women ought to be silent in the church. So he must mean a different type of speech than what he was referring to in chapter 11. Now, this makes sense to me for several reasons. And notice that what Paul, when he expands on this, he says, if she wants to learn anything, she should ask her husband at home. So here's here's what seems to be happening here in the church in Corinth. Remember what he said about people who have prophetic gifts, right? They're supposed to speak one at a time, and uh, that could be men or women based on chapter 11, verse 5, and then the other people are supposed to what? What's the response? Weigh what's said, right? So someone utters this prophetic word, and then everybody else in the gathering weighs what is said. Well, apparently what must have been happening there in Corinth is 
Either there were women who were weighing what was said in a way that was kind of embarrassing everyone because they were being like, they were like interrogating the person that, that had uh, uh, uttered that prophetic speech or they were just asking a lot of questions and it was a distraction. It wasn't building people up in the church. And of course, the Corinthians knew exactly what Paul was talking about and we live thousands of years later and we were not there and so we don't know exactly what specific instance he was talking about. So we've got to weigh, or we've got to, to, to wrestle with this, and, and uh, we've got to uh, understand uh, that, that they were doing something that was bringing shame upon the congregation. Notice what he says, if they're not in subjection, it brings shame on the local church. So does that ring a bell from chapter 11? He was talking about honor and shame there in chapter 11 as well. It's a shame when, when a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she's dishonoring her head, right? And then he brings up that same topic uh, here in chapter 14. So he's talking about honor and shame. So they were doing something that was bringing shame on the body of Christ. So let me illustrate what I think was going on with a, a family example. Imagine that you're married and you're having a family conversation around the kitchen table, and maybe uh, it's dinner time or something like that, and your children begin to notice that every time you speak, your spouse corrects what you've said. How many of you, that is totally foreign to your experience, that's never happened to you? Okay, nobody's raising their hand, so uh, we all kind of understand this, okay? So imagine there you are, you're married, and every time you speak, your spouse corrects or clarifies or contradicts something that you're saying. Okay, kids, tomorrow I want you to all clean the living room and then go outside and pull weeds. And then your spouse speaks up, hey, no, we don't need to pull weeds tomorrow, we need to do, we're going to go shopping tomorrow. And okay, one time, no big deal, right? Misunderstandings happen. But let's say it happens over and over and over again. What would you feel in that situation? Keep, leave aside who's at fault. We all know it's, the, it's probably the husband, okay? But leave aside who's at fault in that situation. What would you feel in that moment? You would feel embarrassed for them. The kids would feel uncomfortable. Why are mom and dad like this? Why are they fighting all that? Why are they always contradicting each other? And it's, folks, that's a little bit what it's like in the church, apparently, uh, in, in the church at Corinth. Because whenever these folks were getting up to prophesy, there was something going on where people were uttering these uh, the, the, uh, questions, and it was bringing shame or embarrassment on the church. You see, the way that a husband and wife treat each other in front of other people is a matter of honor and shame. And if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been on the receiving and the giving end of this if you've been married for any length of time. You say something in front of other people to or about your spouse and you realize immediately after it comes out of your mouth, oh, I just embarrassed my spouse. Okay, I've shamed myself. I've shamed her or him and so this is what was happening in Corinth. There was something that these women were doing that was bringing shame to their husbands and to the church as a whole. They were speaking out of turn. They were uh, questioning or interrogating, and that brought shame. So as we bring this into the present day, every church has to wrestle with this. What does this look like? What brings honor to the church of Jesus Christ? What would bring shame to the church of Jesus Christ? Now, in our church, 
women speak all the time, right? Uh, They read scripture, they sing with the band, they make announcements, they make reports, they offer testimony, but they don't preach, they don't openly rebuke or interrogate or question, Uh, although I'm sure they've thought those questions and thought those things, uh, they don't utter them out out loud. And so if you're looking for a line, that's kind of where we've drawn the line as a church, but I would encourage you to do something else. Instead of looking at the boundaries, instead of asking yourself, okay, what's permitted? What am I allowed to do as a woman? Or what is my wife allowed? Or what can, I, what can I tell my wife not to do? You know, instead of looking at the line, look at the center. Look at what the heartbeat is behind this command. Look at the worldview that Paul brings to this topic. Because notice verse 34 again. He says, they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Did you catch that? As the law also says. In other words, there's something in the Old Testament law that is so fundamentally tied to the way that God wishes his people would behave in the church that it undergirds the instruction that Paul gives to, for, for New Covenant worship. And, and, and so what does the apostle mean when he says that women should be in submission as the law also says? Well, just like in chapter 11, here's where I'm going with this. What Paul is doing is he's taking us all the way back to the beginning. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2? That God created all that exists And he made it a certain way. He wanted it to look a certain way. And when he made the man and the woman and he put them together in a marriage relationship, they were designed to go together. Not that they would be exactly the same and interchangeable. We know that that's not the case. But that they would go together in the way that he intended and he designed. So what he's saying is, look, the church of Jesus Christ, it ought to reflect the design that God has built into creation because what we see in the world is chaos. What we see in the world is that we've taken God's design, we've twisted it out of proportion, we've taken it and we've bent it out of shape. And so what the church should look like is that's coming back into line with God's original design. So when he says a a woman ought to be in submission, he's saying, look, your marriage relationship ought to look the way that I designed marriage to look. The husband ought to be spiritually leading in his home, and the wife ought to be able to say, I'll gladly follow with what you're doing. I'll, I'll gladly follow that, and the church of Jesus Christ ought to reflect that reality as well. In other words, from the very beginning, before sin entered the world, God designed men and women to live in a complementary relationship with one another. And so what I'm saying is that there is a difference in the roles of men and women in the home and in the church, not because of harmful power dynamics, not because of toxic masculinity, not because of Victorian ideals, but because of the design of God himself. So as we're growing more and more like Jesus, as we're slowly reflecting more and more of the righteous life of Christ in our life, that isn't going to take us further away from these differences. It's going to correct those differences and align them with the design of God. See, what we see in the world is chaos, and what God the Spirit is doing is taking that chaos and bringing about order in the way that God designs it to be. Folks, this is the gospel truth undergirding everything that Paul says about worship in his church, in in the church. Why is it that he calls for orderly worship? 
Why is it that he wants people with various spiritual gifts and life situations to all work in harmony rather than clashing with each other? Why is it that he asks women in the church to live in submission to their husbands? It's because God's goal for our lives and actually for the entire world is that it would reflect the harmony and the beauty and the goodness and the glory of his own character in every facet of creation. And what you need to understand is that in the world in which we live, we're not naturally that way. Uh, Things are not the way that they are supposed to be. The cultures of the world reflect the human heart, twisted out of alignment. It's like Satan and our sinful nature, they're trying to constantly pull things back toward the chaos, back towards the, the, the twistedness and away from the glorious life of the garden. Thorns and thistles are choking away that life. Sin destroys and Satan lies and our hearts and our relationships and our worldview are all bent out of shape. Now I know... Whether you're a believer or not, you can see that in your life. That it's not the way it's supposed to be. You see the squandered potential. You see the wasted value. But what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to see that in our own lives and then look at somebody else and say, well, that person doesn't have the same problems as me. Let me compare myself with him or let me compare myself with her and try to be like that other person. And what God is calling us to do, God the Holy Spirit is calling us to do is to say, no, that's not the solution. Looking at somebody else and comparing yourself with somebody else, that's not gonna, that's not gonna save you. That's not gonna change you. What we need to do is to call out to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you're the only one who can fix this. You're the only one who can take the twistedness who can take the bent out of shapeness of my life and and begin to repair and begin to make me righteous and, and to begin to take my life and conform it with the image of your life so that I can bear the image of God the way that I was designed to do. So that's what I want to invite you to do. If you're if you're not if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ today, stop comparing yourself with everybody else. Stop looking for the next way to help yourself and just give up and, and realize Christ is the only one who can help you be who you were designed to be. This is what Paul is calling us to do and this is what worship ought to reflect. That, that restoration that God is bringing about in the world. And when we do this, when we humble ourselves and say, not my way, God, I want your way. Then the Holy Spirit begins to change our values and our perspectives and our loves and our affections. And I'm telling you, as skeptical as you may be of that, if you do it, you will see what I'm talking about. If you trust the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, I'm going to follow what God's word has to say, you will begin to see that God's design is better than you know. And so practically, what does this mean for the church today? Really quickly, let's just drive this home. What does this mean for the church today? It depends on who you are. So let me first speak to all the men in the church. Guys, I know how hard it is to be a man in 2023. I know how hard it is to lead your family in this world. I get how challenging it is because I'm living it myself. I know that you work a lot of hours. I know you have a lot of responsibility, and I'm not here to browbeat you or to give you a hard time. But men, ask yourself, if your wife 
took this passage seriously, and if she had a question about what the Bible teaches, or she had a question about something that happened in worship, or something that the preacher said, and she came home, and she asked you to explain it to her, would you be able to do that? And if the answer is no, then work backwards and ask yourself, why is that? And how can I get to a place where I'm the spiritual leader of my home? It, it, this, in other words, this passage is a test case of a way that you should read your Bible. When you come to a command in the Bible, and that command doesn't make sense with the way that you're currently living, then what you need to do, instead of questioning the Bible, question yourself and say, how did I get to this place where the commands of God don't make sense to me? So men, if your wife, if she's going to obey specifically what this passage says and come to you and ask you questions about spiritual things, and she knows that you don't care about those things, or she knows that you never crack open the Bible, or she knows that you're an angry person and that you won't forgive, or she knows that you, that you just don't care, then, then how is she supposed to ask you for that spiritual guidance? You're putting her in a very, very difficult place spiritually. So guys, most of us understand it's our responsibility to protect our families. It's our responsibility to provide for our families. But it seems to me that in the church we have all but given up the responsibility to serve as spiritual leaders, guides, the pastors of our home. And here it is in black and white. If your wife has a question, she is supposed to be able to ask you, can she do that? I speculate, and this is just a speculation, but I think it's borne out in passages like the one in front of us today, that if we men would stand up and take the initiative to know the Bible and to take our families to church and to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, you would be surprised. You would be shocked and amazed at what God would do with a decision like that for you men. Not waiting around for your wife to drag you to church, not waiting for your kids to take the spiritual initiative and then you follow, but you taking the initiative. That would make such a difference. Ladies, let this responsibility rest on your husband. Give him the space to take his place as spiritual leader. Don't try to force it. Let me really quickly uh, speak to the teenagers for just a moment. You've heard me say this before, girls, but keep in mind, whoever you marry will bear a spiritual responsibility for your family. He will set the tone spiritually in that home. That's the way it is. You might be the most devoted, spiritually-minded woman in existence, and your children that you bore from your own body, they will hear you talk about the Lord, and they will turn and watch their father not care and zone out. And I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, they'll hear what you say, and they'll watch what he does, and they'll follow that. That's the way it is. We can bellyache about it. Can I get a witness or, or, or what? I mean, is that true or not? We can complain about it, but it doesn't change the facts of the matter. So girls, as you're dating, as you're navigating the romantic relationships of high school or college, don't make the mistake of ignoring this reality. 
Don't say, I love Jesus, and then turn around and make excuses for the guy who doesn't. Be picky. Wait on the Lord. Wait for a guy who loves the Lord. Not one who reads the Bible because he can tell it's important to you, but one who reads the Bible because it's important to him. Okay? You understand what I'm saying. Okay, quickly, Paul ends this chapter in this major section of the letter with an appeal to authority. So if you're taking notes, speaking, silence, and spiritual gifts, speaking, silence, and gender, and finally, speaking, silence, and sources of authority. Here's what he's basically saying in these last few verses. Don't be arrogant. Don't act like you know everything. All the churches of Jesus Christ follow this instruction, and he has the authority of an apostle, the the authority of the Holy Spirit behind it. In other words, here's what he's saying. Don't take a difficult passage, one that's hard to apply, one that's hard to swallow, and begin to explain it away and act like you know better than the Holy Spirit does. Let's take what God says and say, I'm not as smart as he is. I'm not as wise as God is. I'm going to go his way instead of my way. Folks, don't we want to be that garden where godliness grows and thrives instead of one that's overgrown with the weeds of ungodliness and unspirituality? We want to be a place that reflects the will of God, the design of God in the new creation. And by God's grace and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, this church, we can be that. We can be the thing that God is designing and bringing about in the world. So let's do that today. Let's walk in obedience to him. Edifying worship is orderly worship. Would you bow with me now in prayer? Father, I want to thank you for your grace and your kindness. Thank you for the attentiveness of your people. And Lord, now the the part where we have to exercise faith, the part where we have to say either I believe the word of God or I'm going to trust my own way. And so, Father, in this moment, I I ask that you would allow the hearts of your people to be moldable and teachable before you and to allow our thoughts and our practices and our ways of being to be molded to your will and your design instead of after our own opinions. And so, Lord, we pray for your help in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.